Philippine Prime read earlier in Mark's Gospel, chapter 3. We will be referring to this in the course of the sermon. And uh, I do want to thank you again. It's humbling to, to be here. It always is when you, when you stand in, in the pulpit and uh, preach God's Word. But it's also a great privilege as well. And, uh, and it's nice not only to be able to do that, but to do it to you fine folks. I must confess, I never tire coming here. I never tire meeting you, speaking to you. It's not a burden. And it's not something, although preaching the Word is difficult, I never find it difficult to, to speak to you or to preach to you. I never get a hostile reaction, really. I'm still waiting on the hate mail coming, but it doesn't arrive. So I really do thank you for your prayers and support. As you see from the bulletin, we have passed our 540,000 pound mark, that was the magic number. And, uh, but God has very much got his hand on us at Nidre. And I know that you're with us, not only in financial terms, but pray for us as well. And I know there's a time coming when we will look back and uh, that hurdle, that massive financial hurdle will seem like a blip because without doubt difficult days lie ahead of us uh, as we seek to take the gospel into the the people of Nidri with the help of this new building. We are doing nothing less than making an an assault on the kingdom of the wicked one. He will not like this. He will try to attack us and our families. It's the battles as real as that. And uh, it's not something easy, something uh, mild-mannered that we're doing. It's spiritual warfare. And uh, so we really do appreciate your prayer support. And uh, as always, the call goes out for more laborers. The harvest truly is plentiful in Nidri, but we do need more laborers. So I, I, I throw that challenge out to you as well. But do thank you sincerely for your support, prayerfully and otherwise as well. This week has been slightly different for me. This, this past week, I, I've done two things. That I, uh, I've done something twice that I normally don't even do once, and that was going to the cinema. I very seldom ever get to the cinema. Uh, one of the, the films I went to see was Touching the Void, about mountaineering, and great film. I really commend that to you. I found that a great, great film. Uh, not very well known. And the other film which reduced me to tears was a Walt Disney one, Brother Bear. Uh, I was dragged there, kicking and screaming. Uh, on Saturday, uh, the reason I was in tears was not because the film was particularly moving. We thought it was part of the matinee. The adult gets in free with the child costing us £4 and at the start seeing this bear and it cost us £15. Uh, I'm, I'm still under sedation. Uh, £15 to, to see a cartoon. Uh, but it was good fun and I commend that to you if you've got any children. Nothing violent in it. It was just it was good fun. But there is another film that I would like to see and it's a very well known film and it's It's The Passion by Mel Gibson. Many Christians are talking about this film. They're looking forward to seeing it. Many articles have been written. And even now, perhaps you've been swung one way. It's a good film. One another way, perhaps it's not been been such a good film. It's a film that Mel Gibson of Braveheart fame has produced and financed and so forth. And it depicts the last 12 hours of Jesus' life in all its sufferings. I'm sure you can tell me more about the film than I can tell you. But I was interested to to try and understand a wee bit why Mel Gibson has produced this film. It wasn't just to make him more famous. It's it's certainly done that, but uh, he's he's created a lot of controversy uh, as being anti-Semitic and blaming the Jews and and, and so forth. Don't worry, I'm not going to go into all the ins and outs of the passion. You can see that as, as, as I'll probably see it sometime. But he says, I had to make this movie. Indeed, he says, I couldn't not make it. He comes from a devout Roman Catholic background and being in the film industry, he perhaps wandered away from his roots. 
and as he says, he went through an early midlife crisis, and he went back to his Roman Catholic roots, got on his knees, he said, and he says, I realize that his wounds, Jesus' wounds, could heal my wounds, because he was focusing on the stations of the cross, as Roman Catholics would do, and he was focusing on the last few hours of Jesus' life. And it had a profound effect on Mel Gibson. Indeed, it's been said that everything up until this point, according to Mel Gibson, has, all the money has, has been for this point. He says, uh, unashamedly, this is God's movie. He says, uh, the Holy Ghost was running the show, I was just directing the traffic. And it said in, in an article that Mel Gibson hopes that people will be led to saving faith in Christ. And uh, he says that during the filming in, in Italy, many people did come to know the Lord as their own saviour. But he says this, he hopes that moviegoers will be forced into making a decision about Christ. And that, that in and of itself cannot be bad to, to get people to consider Jesus Christ. Now whether this film succeeds in this, or whether it doesn't, whether it just shows blood and gore, but has no uh, real reason for why Jesus suffered. I was interested in reading an, an article by an atheist. Having seen the film, he says, it wasn't a good advert for religion, because nowhere through it did you get the understanding why Jesus went through this. And, and we hope that, certainly I hope that that will be communicated. Otherwise, it's just blood and gore. There has to be a reason. And not just these physical sufferings, but the spiritual sufferings that, that Jesus went through, which were far greater. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what that means. Mel Gibson then created a film for people to think about Jesus. We are continuing our series of studies in the Gospel of Mark. And Mark has a similar reason. Uh, he wants people, he's written a Gospel about the life of Jesus. He wants people like Mel Gibson to take Jesus seriously, to consider who he is. And in Mark's writing here, he presents Jesus as thoroughly human. As someone who eats and drinks and who is hungry. Who touches people, who is touched and he is touched by them. Who grieves, who is indignant who is fatigued, who is a human body, who dies. He presents someone as the son of man, as a servant. But he, at the same time, he presents Jesus as the son of God. You see this in the very first verse. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right away he nails his colors to the mast. The son of God. And he presents him as such. He heals, he casts out demons, he cleanses lepers. He even raises the dead. He has power over nature. He walks on water. He feeds many. He knows men's hearts and circumstances. And ultimately, he dies. And he is raised to life again. He is none other than the Son of God. And Mark wants us to respond to him in his gospel as the Son of God. Up until now, he has presented in the early chapter of Mark. I've not heard Peter's sermons on this, so hopefully I won't contradict anything that he has said. But up until now, he, at the very beginning of, of Mark's gospel, he is, there has been the presentation of Jesus through John the Baptist. Here is Jesus, here is he arri arriving on the scene. And then the last few chapters have been very much to do with, not so much the presentation, but the manifestation of Jesus. Who is he? What does he do? He is a miracle worker. He heals. And he has power. He is, is no less than the Son of God. 
And now we come up to verse 7 of chapter 3, and we enter into a very key section in, in Mark's Gospel, because up until now, Jesus has is, is been beginning to heal, and along with these healings, naturally, Jesus becomes very popular. And that's what's happening here. Crowds begin to follow Jesus. If you and I were healing people, folk would follow us. Jesus is becoming very popular. We are told that large crowds, and they literally number tens of thousands, not just a hundred or two hundred, thousands of people from a wide area are now becoming, uh, wanting to know more about Jesus. And they are, they are coming. But alongside the crowds, there are smaller crowds of people, and those people are opposing Jesus. They are standing against Jesus. And, uh, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. When Peter gave me this passage, I thought, wow, six verses would have been nice. Twenty-eight verses. How do you make sense of this? There seems to be so many things. The crowds coming, demons. And then there was the choosing of the twelve disciples. Then there was a run-in with the Pharisees. And then there's that verse which we could easily spend the whole sermon on in verse 29. Whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit, a verse that, that Christians worry about and argue about and so forth. So the temptation is for me to try and give you too much, and I don't want to do that. But, and I won't answer all your questions in this passage. Maybe you can look at them for yourself. But there is a thread that runs through this. It took me a long time to get to, to what it was, but there is a thread that runs through this. Basically, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he is becoming more popular. But at the same time, you have all of these groups of people who do not really understand Jesus. And, and that's what comes across in all the run-ins with the people here. The, the, there is the crowds who do not understand. There is Jesus' family who, who do not fully understand. And certainly there are the Pharisees who do not understand. So let's, let's look very quickly at, at the crowds. Jesus is becoming more popular. And Mark here, in giving us the material, is showing us that despite his popularity, people don't really know him as the Son of God. Jesus was popular, and we are told in verse 8 why this is, because of what he is doing. Not so much because of what he is teaching. They've heard of the miracles, and they want to be part of it. They want to see it. They want to experience it from them, for themselves. He is a miracle worker, and he can help them at their physical needs, whether it's a sore back or whatever. And they flock to him for this reason. And often, if you know anything of the Gospels, Jesus often played that part of his ministry down. Because his main role is not just to heal bodies, but to, to be the, the physician of souls, to save people from eternal ruin and, and so forth. It's to save us, to give us a future and a hope beyond the grave, not just here and now. And Jesus was very much, and that was his ministry. He came to die. He came to be the saviour. So he was more than just a miracle worker. And uh, all they wanted was healing. When he wanted to preach, they were more interested in what he could do for them. He was popular for this reason. And Mark is mentioning this, uh, showing that he's becoming popular, but the people don't fully understand. Indeed, the demons seem to have a, a better grasp. Demons are quite orthodox. They believe in the Trinity. They know who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. And uh, they have a, a better doctrine of eschatology than you and I might have because they know that he will come again and torment them. When you and I argue, they accept it as fact. And, uh, and they seem to know, but Jesus doesn't uh, 
take their testimony and silences them in verse 11. Could spend a, a time on this, but basically he doesn't want their testimony. When they publicly declare him to be the Son of God, they're not doing it to help him, but in some way even to discredit Paul as well, silenced demons when they said, we know who you are and, and, and who Jesus is. He silenced them. He didn't want their witness. Some commentators have said perhaps it's because they were known as having lying spirits and the very fact that you, nobody could trust what they said and therefore by saying this, the opposite might have been the case. Plus his time wasn't here. There's so many reasons why Jesus silenced them. But the crowds, the crowds, simply didn't know who Jesus was. It's the same today. You have members of your family who can tell you things about Jesus. He healed. He, he did many things. You have members, you have people in the workplace. You, you have uh, people at college or university who are the same as these crowds who have an opinion of Jesus but falls far short of who Jesus is as the saviour of, of mankind, as your saviour and my saviour, as the son of God, as the only way to God. And we live in a day where the crowds are the same as Jesus' day, where they didn't really know. They may have said he was a good teacher. He, his, his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount is worth following. And many good things about Jesus and many true things, but falling short of acknowledging him as saviour. The crowds are the same today as they were in Jesus' day. They didn't understand. But if, if they could be forgiven because they didn't know much, there are other two groups of people who couldn't be forgiven in that sense because they should have known better, namely Jesus' family. We are told that Jesus is becoming popular. He's drawing attention to himself by his teaching and by his actions. And you're almost given the impression that, that he, he's like an embarrassment to the family. What's he doing now? What's all these people he's getting around? He's drawing attention to himself. Indeed, the scriptures tell us Verse 21, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. And then, when you come to the end of the passage that we read, verse 31, Jesus' mother and brothers, they finally arrive and, uh, to take charge of him and so forth. He is beside himself, or the Greek implies, he is outside himself. He's not himself. He's, things have changed. For 30 years of his life, things seem to be quite easy, Ozzy, and they knew, and without doubt, he'd be the saviour of the world. We, we don't know exactly their thinking, but certainly Mary, if you read Mark, uh, Luke 1 and 2, had a, a knowledge of who Jesus was. But here, uh, we, we, we see them standing in the way of Jesus, wanting to take charge of him, to bring him out of this crowd, not recognising that he was about his father's business. And uh, they feel as if he's out of his mind. Not to say he's mad. Mad speaks of, of demon possession and so forth. And, uh, but they didn't understand. And then you had this other group of people called the religious leaders. They too, verse 22 through to verse 30, they too didn't know who Jesus was and their verdict is read in verse 22. If the family think he's out of his mind, he's beside himself, the teachers of the law coming down from Jerusalem. Mark is the only person, the only gospel writer who mentions they came from Jerusalem. Not just any leaders, but the leaders. Uh, they came down. What did they say? He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is dry, and by this prince he is driving out demons. In other words, 
Beelzebub, Beelzebul, uh, meaning the Lord of the house or the Lord of the flies. Basically, uh, Beelzebub is like the, the mafia boss, the godfather of Satan himself. And they basically attribute everything that Jesus is doing to him. And Jesus answers this in a very simple, logical way in verses 23 through to 27. He emphasizes two points. He just asks them to basically sit down and think of the folly of what they're saying. He says, if, if it's internal strife, if this is done by the devil himself ransacking his own house, the house will collapse. It makes sense. If you attack your own house from within, it will collapse. And Jesus says it doesn't make sense. Why would Satan be attacking his own kingdom? And secondly, if demons are being exercised, which they acknowledge, then surely a greater than Satan is here. A greater, somebody greater than than him. And uh, he mentions this to them. And then you come on to, after he has done this, he issues a very solemn warning. As, as he puts his own family in place by saying, those who do the will of God are my family. In other words, he pulls them up short. In other words, those who don't stand in the way of my mission and support me in it are my family. He issues a warning to these people as well because they didn't understand. And he says that every sin will be forgiven except for blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What does this mean? As I says, I don't want to labor in this. But what does this mean? Throughout the scriptures... We are told the Holy Spirit is to witness to Jesus Christ. When he comes, when the counselor comes, Jesus says, whom I will send to you, the Spirit of truth who goes from the Father, he will testify about me. That is the whole role of the Holy Spirit, to testify about him. All the work of the Holy Spirit is designed to exalt and to declare the work of the Spirit. And therefore to reject the Spirit and the Spirit's witness is to reject Christ. And that's what these people were in great danger of doing, rejecting Christ and his work completely out of hand. And anyone who does this, and does this throughout their life, and refuses to acknowledge who Jesus is, or to consider, and is, there is no forgiveness. If somebody dies in such a position, rejecting Jesus and his ministry, there is no salvation. There is no salvation in anyone else apart from Jesus. And therefore to reject him and to reject the Spirit's witness of him is, is to, to forfeit forgiveness. There is no forgiveness. And many people, sad to say, die in that condition. They fail to recognize who Jesus is. And Mel Gibson and others are trying to cause people to, to think about this, to reject. But it seems to be that they're doing more than this, that they're actually attributing to God the works of the devil. And saying, well, this is not God, this is the works of the devil. Very serious indeed. I want to say if you're a Christian here and uh, you do not sin in this way, you may backslide, but you do not completely disown. I meet Christians who backslide, but even there's still a spark. Even when when they're backsliding against God, they know deep down in their heart that that, that God, that Jesus is indeed the Saviour. They feel unworthy of, of his love perhaps but they'd never completely disown him or deny that they ever believed and so forth. So Christians don't normally do this unless, of course, they were never saved in the first place. So don't get hung up in this. But Mark, in this, these 28 verses, is basically saying to us, Jesus is becoming popular, but people don't really know who he is. The crowd don't really understand. They're only after things that what he can do. The family seem to have lost their way a bit, and certainly the Pharisees, 
uh, no way do they recognize him as the son of God and indeed associate him with the devil himself. But sandwiched in amidst all this, you have this appointment of the twelve disciples. And it's the most encouraging thing. Uh, Why do you have this here? Jesus chooses 12 disciples. Why? To make Jesus known. To make himself known. You and I are in the same boat today. We live in a day when the crowds don't understand. Most people don't have a clue about Jesus. And you know this yourself. And uh, religious leaders today. I'm having a running with a religious leader in Nidre. And uh, it just it makes me angry when, when they're hindering the gospel, when they denounce Christ and yet profess to be a representative of Christ, a uh, Protestant minister. And very sad, we live in such days when religious leaders and the crowds do not know. But Jesus, in the midst of all this, chooses 12 disciples uh, so that the time will come when they will make Jesus known. And by way, this is just the introduction. I'm going to give you three points, but I'm going to give you them in less than about five minutes. And this is the three points I want you to take away. Jesus chose 12 disciples in the midst of confusion that they might make Jesus known. He has chosen you and I that we too might make Jesus known. And the first thing is this. We are told in verse 14 why he appointed them apostles. We don't have apostles today. Apostles were those who had seen Jesus face to face. We have disciples, but we follow in the same pattern. He chose them, first of all, for discipleship, that they might be with Jesus and learn from him. And Jesus, Mark is very interested in the 12 disciples and uh, how they were being taught and so forth. God has chosen you. And that is the first reason, that you might be with him, and that you might learn from him. And that's what we are to do. We learn in sermons, we learn in a quiet time, we learn in Bible studies. We also learn in life's experiences, and through fellowship with him. It's not always easy, as the Lord places, places us into difficult situations, as he did with them. But he does this with us as well. And in a a confused society, in a confused workplace, with friends and so forth, we are placed there that we might share something of the Lord because we are with Him. Now it's not just theology. The world doesn't need uh, just somebody to come and spout John 3.16. The world wants to see, to know people who have had a personal experience of the Lord. Somebody who has been with the Lord and you know I spoke to the Lord. It gets up non-Christians' noses when they say, boy, you talk to him as if, as if you just you, you, you know him so intimately. How do you know him? You ever prayed with a non-Christian? So most moved, they, they just go, wow, they feel you have a direct link. And it's a great thing. It's great to know that what comes across is you are somebody who has been with the Lord. And that is why the Lord has chosen us for discipleship, to train us and to teach us. I want to challenge you as I challenge myself. How well are you? Uh, how good are you at learning? Have you learned much about the Lord since the day in which you were saved? Are you excited by Him? Or is your Christian life humdrum and boring and, and just meetings after meetings? But there's no excitement there. His his desiring choosing us as disciples is that we might be with him, that we might be disciples. And that's what the world needs. That's what your, your workplace needs. It needs a disciple. Your family needs a disciple, a follower of Jesus. That's what it means. Somebody who is with the Lord, who knows the Lord. 
who knows his heart and his mind, who knows his word. And that's why the world doesn't know. Because we don't know. Because we, we are a bit confused and befuddled by it all. And what's happening in the world and, and what's in the heart of man and why things happen the way they do. Because we are not following the Lord as we should. The world today needs disciples. As they needed disciples, the Lord knows that we need, uh, the world needs disciples as well. Secondly, he chose them not only for discipleship, but for declaration. In verse 14b, they were to be with him, and that he might send them out to preach. That he, they might be sent for to communicate what the Lord had shown them. Everything that the Lord had shown them, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will bring back to your mind, and these are the things that you are to share. Now, as, known, as Christians, we find this difficult, if we're honest, the declaration part, the going forth and telling. We like the being with Jesus bit. Boy, that's, that's so nice. It's sermons, it's quiet times, it's private devotions. We love our meetings and we're committees and we're prayer meetings and we're conferences as well. Boy, we'll be at Caster or Spring Harvest or wherever it is. We love being with Jesus and being with God's people. But declaring, telling folk what the Lord tells us is a different matter. Whenever I, before I became a Christian, I used to get up to all sorts at the weekend. I took great delight in telling, usually the words went round anyway when they told some wacky thing that I got up to at the weekend. Uh, because did you hear what John did? He did this and oh, he climbed on the roof of a bus or did something. But see, when I became a Christian, after the weekend, on a Monday morning, I sat as a young Christian, drinking in the Word of God. I'll tell you, see, if you're not a Christian here, and you're comparing this with, with going to a pub, and you think, well, the pub's more exciting. When you're a Christian, this is far more exciting. When you know the love of God and God himself speaks to you and works in your life and takes an interest. That's what happened to me as I sat in a Sunday morning service, just thrilled by God. But did I share this great saviour with the folk in work? No, they wouldn't understand the deep things of God. So I never told them it, uh, partly out of embarrassment, because these were great eternal truths and and they were only interested in Stella Artois and, and, and whatever thing was in the charts. That, that was all they were interested in. So I just kept it all to myself, thinking I was still loving the Lord. When here we see the Lord chose us to give us these things, to feed you, to fire you up on a Sunday in your quiet time, and through life's experiences as you've wept and prayed for a loved one and seen them restored, the Lord says, tell them. Because the world, no, no, it's no wonder that they think Moses is in the New Testament and uh, they can tell you everything, like, like topsy-turvy, uh, because we simply don't tell them. It's not good enough, is it, to point the finger to the world and say, they're a bunch of numpties. They don't have a clue. When the simple truth is, they don't have a clue because we are not showing this. We are not declaring anything to them. And therefore they're left in their ignorance. And this goes against what Jesus has chosen us for. I wonder, I ask you, are you with the Lord? Are you experiencing things? Is it exciting? As he was with them, their lives were different. It was exciting. And are you declaring? Every wee answer to prayer, just say it. Even if they think you're a space cadet, uh, just say, look, this is what the Lord done for me. You know, he answered a prayer this week. I prayed for a car, and, and I got a car, and I did this, and I got a parking space. Whatever your wee trivial prayer is, or your big prayer. Tell them how great our Saviour is. I think the reason we don't declare is we're simply not with him enough. We're not excited by him. That's, that's, that's the truth. If we're really deep down in our hearts, we're embarrassed. 
We're embarrassed and we hope Mel Gibson will do it for us. And we don't do it for ourselves. Declaration. Lastly, demonstration. They were sent for to heal, uh, to cast out demons. Does this mean that uh, we have a new meeting every Monday night as demon exorcism night? Uh, Not necessarily, although many missionaries wish that they had some kind of training in this. As they encounter demons, they are very real. In certain parts of the world, they make themselves very evident. But the point here is this. With the coming of the gospel, with the coming of the Lord, as a direct assault in Satan's kingdom, people are set free. That's what all this is about. People are being set free. There are people here who have been set free from sin and the guilt of sin and the power of sin, and your life is different. But there are still many others who are not set free. And our gospel has to be a gospel of power. Otherwise, it's nothing. It is not just about quiet times. It is not just about saying a wee thing now and again and giving it a track. Where is the power behind our message? Where is it? We, we, we profess that Jesus is the Son of God. You know, I serve the Son of God. You know, He is all power and all authority. But I don't expect Him to see we Auntie Betty there who, who's just finding it hard or, or who's trouble with lumbago and she just, well, Lord, it's up to you and, and there's no power. Or seeing somebody steeped in sin and immorality and not expecting the preaching of the gospel to change them and to free them. But we've lost the wonder of the power of Christ. And the power of the gospel. There has to be a demonstration. There has to be evidences of this as well. So the Lord has chosen us. He's chosen us to be first of all a disciple. That he might teach us to a world that's confused. That he might, through the word of God, through others, through life's experiences, that we might be disciples, followers of Christ, therefore able to go out and to declare to a a confused world that doesn't know. Mel Gibson may fail. He may just present a gory Jesus with no apparent reason for his death, except just to say, look how much he loved you. Not recognizing that God was behind it all. Not just Jews. God crucified his son. And we need to declare this. We need to declare every thing that excites us about the Lord because we are followers of him we cannot help but be excited we are to declare this and we are to expect a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power boy I just I, 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 I could weep over that third one I really, where is the evidence Lord where is, is it because I just don't know you enough I'm not declaring I'm not witnessing is it because we're failing in the first two that we do not see the demonstration This is why the Lord has chosen us in a confused world. This is why Mark has written this gospel that people might know. This is what Jesus is going to do with the disciples from now on, to teach them and to train them, such that when he's taken up, they will declare and it will go forth with power. May the Lord help us to do this. May the Lord challenge us and not leave our witnessing to Mel Gibson and to others. But may we walk with the Lord. May we declare him. May we demonstrate his power in the days that lie ahead. Let's close by.